We are back for episode two of the Modern Mindset Podcast. I'm your host, Mufus Chowdhury. I am with my incredible co-host, Camille, and I'm excited to keep this podcast show running with some incredible conversations that we're going to have going forward. I also have to take care of some of the boring housekeeping rules, which is the fact that I need to let people know that, as promised, the Modern Mindset Podcast is now available on streaming platforms for you audio lovers out there. So for those of you that love tuning in through Spotify, we got you. Just look up Modern Mindset Podcast and you'll find out. And if you're into Amazon Music, we also got you. Just look up Modern Mindset Podcast on Amazon Music. And from what I hear, we're not far away from being showcased on the final boss the last one we need to take down, which is Apple iTunes. So we'll be streaming there shortly. So for those of you that watch us live and um, like to see it in video format on YouTube, we greatly appreciate it. We love that, especially if you can join us on the live conversation while we're recording. When we are recording live, we can actually read your comments and interact with you, which we really love having fun with it. But on the audio side, for individuals like that like listening while they're walking on the road, walking the dog, driving, working out of the gym, whatever it is that you like doing that results in you listening to a podcast, we're excited to let you know that you can do that as well. So all we ask as we kick off this show episode after episode is whether you're watching on YouTube or audio format, please do take a quick second to hit that. Sub- <clears throat> oh, man, I, I warned you, Camille, my voice was going to run <laughs> out and we're going to really test it through a two hour recording today. If you are your first, that's right. There's always one of those. If you are listening on YouTube or an audio platform, I would love it. And Camille would love it if you could hit the subscribe button so that you'd be the first to know every single time we go live and every single time that there is another episode. But with that being said, Camille, as I hydrate myself so desperately, how are you doing, man? How's your week going? My week is going well. Um, I uh, I went hang gliding yesterday, which was a beautiful experience, and uh, it, it's actually quite fitting that we're talking about how to have better experiences now, since I had to kind of reframe my mindset towards that to actually allow myself to have the full mm-hmm. experience. So I had a great week. How about you? Oh man, hang gliding sounds like a trip. I've done skydiving once in my life many years ago and I understand that you've been skydiving too which is kind of nice because I talk about skydiving with a lot of people but it's hard for me as much as I try my best to paint the picture of that experience of jumping out of an airplane and not feeling like you're falling but rather than the earth coming up to you as if you're just floating and it's approaching you it's very hard for someone else to imagine that, but I imagine that you understand exactly what I mean. So that's the closest that I've ever been to in that level of extreme sports. But hand gliding, man, it's uh, that's another one that that's going to take a, a little a little testing in my comfort level area to to get me on one of those. But what does that experience look like? Why did you do it? And And try to paint the picture to someone like myself who's never done it for what that feels like. Okay, I'll do my best. So oh, I decided I wanted to try it just because I did skydiving before and I'm terrified of heights. So I figured I'm scared of it. I have to do it now. And also it's just having an extreme experience like that. I call it extreme, even though it's not. And I'll describe that later. Challenges you in a way that you get to understand more of yourself. And also like, you know, put to the boundaries of, you know, 
fear, excitement, and that whole unknown that you explore is, to me, why I, what I live for. And uh, I, when I when I went to it, I had this expectation that I'm going to be scared for my life this whole time because, you know, I'm afraid of heights. Uh, you know, you hear the worst, and then you sign the waivers, which don't help. Which, like, if when you were skydiving as well, they, uh, I'm pretty sure you remember the waiver. What is the worst thing that could happen while skydiving? You can die, and you actually have to write that down and then sign. I promise not to sue, or I promise my family cannot win the lawsuit if they try to sue. So, you know, having that doesn't necessarily help, but you know, legal reasons. So, having that kind of maybe not expectation. I think that, uh, yeah, sorry, not expectation, but having these, this kind of uh, unfamiliar territory that you had to explore is, it can be quite nerve wracking, especially when they kind of reinforce that there are serious comp uh, complications if it goes wrong. But, you know, going up, it, it almost feels like a roller coaster when they pull you up and when you're going up the hang glider, it kind of feels almost violent for lack of a better term. But when you're in the air, I have to tell you, it's amazing. It's kind of like meditative. Like there's that bar you have to hold. And I did a tandem, right? So I had an instructor like show me and he, he was just like, let go. I let go. And it was like, you're kind of like floating, like levitating in the air. And you just kind of had to feel for the bar to let it go like even. So he's like, the hang glider will tell you where to go. So he just lets go of the bar and the bar like shifts. And he's like, okay, so it goes to the left. So I had to pull it to the right. And it was just, it was amazing to see. Well, first of all, like, you know, uh, the environment around just because you're so high up, but it was surprisingly like meditative like floating around and just oh i can't i can't explain it it was absolutely amazing and um i i just it just blew me away i had no idea i thought the whole time it would be kind of nerve-wracking adrenaline packed but man getting lost in that moment was amazing it, it really shows you the difference between the expectation that we set going into these things that are sometimes more often than not what is really causing the fear and not the experience in itself, right? And sometimes that is the difference between what prevents someone from doing these things versus actually trying it out and saying, man, this is not even close to being as bad as I thought it was. It's actually a lot more fun and a lot more easier than I thought, which gets really, really exciting. I remember that very vividly, you know, it's uh it's been a very long time. I would say probably more than a decade since I've gone skydiving, but I still remember it so vividly because of what an ex extreme experience it is. And the, the, the part that really stands out to me is the fact that when you first go in and, and sign these waivers, you really have that realization that you have no choice but to trust these individuals. You know, and when you're trusting these individuals, you're kind of at their mercy and you, you've only just met them you know you only just met them and you're you're at their mercy to decide whether or not this is going to be the right fit for you so 
you imagine like the level of trust that's required in order for you to really go through with this stuff. And once you do, you, you realize that the, the buildup going into this moment is more, sometimes more terrifying than the moment itself. And there's this beautiful feeling, man, when you finally jump out and that part of the fear only lasts for a, a small period of time because you're thinking the worst is going to happen. You're thinking the worst is going to happen, but you can almost in an instance see your mind transform from, wait, it's not as bad as I thought. And then you're like, wait, it's actually kind of fun. And then you're like, man, I really hope it doesn't end. And then unfortunately it goes so quickly that part of you are like, I blacked out because you were too busy observing the transition of your emotions going through that experience that by the time it ends you're like I really wish I was more in the present trying to take it in and really enjoying everything that's happening um, which is which is quite fascinating and it's always exciting to see this is what it gets me really pumped and I've been a a big fan of speaking about growing and the different ways that you can grow and we talked a lot about growing through better conversations which as we know, is uh, was an epic episode. I absolutely love the feedback that we received. A lot of people seem to get a lot of value from it. And we're already hearing from a lot of people that can relate. You know, a lot of people have already started sharing how a conversation has made an impact on their life. Some of our closest friends are talking about how it made them think a little bit. And to me, that's a big part of our podcast movement and what we're trying to achieve. And then I think about the other component that plays a big role in accelerating how quickly you can grow. And it's not about rushing the process. It's about giving yourself enough information and enough experience in order to make sure that you don't just grow, but you grow the right direction. You know, when you have lack of information or when you're growing in a way that you feel naive, you know, you're, you're really not sure, or maybe you've just trusted someone else's information for a long time and how this is the way to grow by not giving yourself the experience you're kind of just going back to what we talked about in the first episode, which is the autopilot mode that makes you go through all these different experiences with your eyes closed, hoping that things just work out for you down the road. And I think a big underlying message in a lot of our episodes is really going to be about being intentional, right? Being intentional about the conversations, being intentional about the experiences that you have and being intentional about what to do with it so that you're consciously making your decisions and not subconsciously driving on autopilot. And this is why I've been really excited to talk about what I think is going to be equally as important as episode number one, which is growing through better experiences. I was watching the Olympics last week and it was, uh, it was quite a, an epic moment for Canadian history because the Canadian women's soccer team has won gold medal for the first time in history and that's all I've been seeing every single time I open up my social media. And it's it's quite impressive because of all the struggles that they've gone through over the years to get to where they are. And it was a big celebration. And I was reading an article uh, even earlier this morning. And the article highlighted the fact that the average age of the uh, the players on the Canadian soccer team was 23.7 years old. And they said, if you take out their their uh their goalie which is the mature player in the team the one that's the vet who's 34 34 years old it's even lower and i was thinking a little bit while reading that article about how amazing it must be for someone like that player that's the average about 23 years old having a realization at such a young 
uh, at a young age that this was her calling, that this is what she wanted to do. And this was her passion in life, or even the fact that maybe she has some talents in this area. And I think about how she might have discovered that talent or that passion. And I, I think about what would have been different in her life if she never tied the laces to her soccer cleats for the first time. And she never got on the soccer turf to kick a ball around for the first time, how different her life might have been. And this is why I think a big part of what experiences mean to me is the fact that it allows you to taste different things to figure out if your core values and your passions and your burning desire aligns with what what experience that you're having in any given day. And if you close yourself away from those experiences and you keep yourself sheltered, you never really allow yourself to discover that full potential in you if you haven't allowed yourself to taste things along the way. And being that you started the story with hand gliding, I, I kind of want to dig that a little bit more because it's a, it's a fun story, but I'd also like to know like the motive. Aside from the fact that there's probably a million Instagram videos showing how epic hand gliding could be with some individual wearing a GoPro camera on their head. What is the motive for why you went skydiving and then why you went hand gliding? And there's other activities that I personally know that you're doing um, even for the first time. If you don't mind sharing it, that'd be great as well. But talk to me a little bit about the motivation behind these experiences. Is it similar to the Canadian women's soccer team players who might be trying to taste things at certain points in their life to discover if there's an alignment with their passion and this activity. Yeah. You know what? It's kind of interesting that you tie it in with that because I'm doing it very intentionally for the purpose of gaining experience. And that experience comes from doing things that I'm scared of. I know how anxiety works and I've dealt with my own anxiety, my own fear. And as long as you feed that circuit, the negative feedback loop will always be there. So, or it can even be positive feedback loop for avoidance. And for me, I want to kind of break away from that fear, uh, break away from the fear of, you know, heights, that fear of dying, maybe even. And so I'm doing more of these extreme stuff to expose myself to this fear that I haven't been challenged much in my life. So by doing so, I hope to find, and that's my intention, hope to find what scares me, why, and how I deal with it. And then from there, I want to deconstruct how I can allow myself to be present in these moments. Because if I can be present in these moments where I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to die, then it's going to, I'm going to try to extend that kind of mindset to everything I do. And that way, you know, throwing myself into the fire, I at least can handle awkward conversations or, uh, you know, like job interviews, right? They won't seem as extreme to me, despite the fact that they can have all this pressure built up towards it. So my underlying motivation behind doing this, well, underneath, why I want to do all of these uh, extreme experiences we can see is to understand myself better. And then from there, actually take in these learnings, find out who I am in these situations where it's high stress, anxiety provoking, fear situations, and how I can improve my reaction to them. 
because we we know that you know you have to be present in the situation in the moment to experience all of it to open yourself up to it but it's another thing to practice it so this is my way of practicing it and i'm hoping that it'll extend to the other fields now in relation to the soccer players it's also to see what i like because now i see that you know what i i did like skydiving just i can't picture myself doing it like regularly oh i'm almost okay with just having that experience once maybe again later on but that's fine hang gliding on the other hand like i can see myself doing it just the investment part is something I have to be aware of. Like, is it worth investing my time and my money into it? I mean, I love to do it and I'll probably do it again. So I, I, get, I got to know myself more and then um, also talking with the instructors why they went into it, uh, you know, having these conversations um, with these people that are adrenaline junkies, yet they're somehow doing something so meditative that there's this kind of, paradox there that i want to explore and that's why i you know i ask them a, a lot of questions to this their dismay sometimes but it it opens my eyes to new experiences and also helps me discover new things and you know what those people too you talk to them about what else do they do and then you get new ideas and and from there who knows new passions uh new hobbies like i did archery two weeks ago and uh, like my first archery lesson and i gotta say that i want to keep doing so i'm doing another one and then hopefully i'm looking into getting a long bow and then i have to do like a bunch of tests uh well actually maybe one test at this archery range near me and hopefully i'll have the opportunity to become part of that club and you know it came from challenging myself to do something new and i found out you know i love these activities where you just kind of lose yourself and you get so immersed and you're kind of you know in the flow state um in the moment and you just can't think of anything else you're just locked in and it's almost like you think up you stop focusing on all these other things and instead it's like you're focused but you're really not if that makes any sense like you're so hyper focused that it's almost unaware and that feeling is worth chasing like you can get the same thing from meditation but it's different when it's with an activity so i'm looking for more of those and to understand myself better. It's quite interesting to me that a lot of these external activities is a lot more better defined in your internal way of thinking. It's discovering yourself a bit better and how your body and your emotions respond to something new. And sometimes it surprises you, right? Like sometimes you'd be like, wow, I was terrified and now I'm obsessed with this. Or like, I actually never realized how much I hate doing this one thing. Or this is something that, although you may not have fell in love with the activity, you love the people that are into it because they seem to have similar passions or they're interesting in a way that your body responds to it. 
So it's quite fascinating that the more you experience, the more you start learning about how your body responds to things. You know, I've, I've come out many years ago and I finally admitted my uh, excruciating fear around dogs. And I, I wish I could tell you that it was by choice. I literally cannot control that side of me. Like when there is a dog around me, um, as adorable as it looks, there's just a part of me inside of myself that starts feeling anxiety. My heart starts racing. I'm breathing a little bit louder. And the more energy the dog has, the more my body responds to it. I never knew that was a thing until, of course, naturally, I was presented in front of dogs. And that just happened based on me walking down the street every day. But how else would I have known that? Right. And then I think about what other uh, activities are out there that makes my body respond differently, especially in the positive way, right? Like that, that, that example of the dog, unfortunately, is uh, a feeling that I wish I could turn off and something that I've been practicing and figuring out how to get through it. But on the other side, like, what are those things that makes my body the opposite? It makes me excited. It makes me motivated. It makes me energized. It makes me want to do all these other things with it. And what's really fascinating, as you outlined, is that the objective of what you're trying to get out of it is almost never linear, right? Like you went into archery and, or you went into, uh, into trying different activities, like even skydiving. And although the skydiving may not be something you take up again anytime soon, you might've made a friend there, or you might've come out with a story there that will allow you in the future to connect with someone else that also went skydiving. And now you have a bond through that mutual experience. And I, I think about how, the part of it not being linear to me is actually the most exciting. I think if you got an output of exactly what your input is, it's almost too robotic, right? It, it feels too much like an algorithm of you did something and you got something back and that's the end of it. And I, I like the, the part that we talked about quite heavily last episode, which is the idea of serendipity and the idea of spontaneous outcomes, which tend to happen frequently when you're out there doing things, right? Like, is it so hard to believe that you may meet your significant other if you go out more versus not going out more? Is it so hard to believe that you may have had a good day if you chose to go out in a sunny day rather than staying in and doing your same routine that maybe is not exciting? It's like, it's not hard to believe that going out there and trying things gives you better outcomes. And you know what's interesting is, as you were saying that, my mind drifted back to grade seven. Because there's a, there's a science teacher that we had that said something once that I think will forever stick with me. And my science teacher was a, a bit unorthodox in the way that he taught his class, which is why he's so memorable. Uh, Mr. Hamil Mr. Hamilton was his name, actually. I, I very much remember. And I hope somewhere in the future I can meet him again because I'd like to uh, very heavily thank him for really giving me perspectives on life that I think not a lot of people in grade seven get. You know, an example of Mr. Hamilton was uh, one day we all came into class about mid-semester and he, uh, he saw us all go back to our same seats. You know, we all kind of had our same seats. It wasn't assigned seating. We just were comfortable. We're sitting in that same spot. And one day in the middle of the semester, he basically said, I want you all to stand up, come around to my side of the lab table, and I want you to climb on top of this lab table with this chair that I put on both sides. And once you climb up, I just want you to take a couple of seconds to take a look at the, at the room and then climb back down on the other side. And we all lined up very confused for why he was making us do that. And we all got up on top of the table 
And we all looked around the room and it was kind of fun. I got to tell you, like, I felt like, wow. So this is what it's like being like, I don't know, like seven feet tall. You know, you kind of see the room in a new perspective that you never had. And you kind of climb back down. And after the last person finally did it and we all took our seats, he reminded us that every single day that we came into this classroom, we've been looking at this classroom from, a, from the same perspective, right? The same perspective of our height, same per- perspective from the seats that we sat in and same perspective on who we interacted with as a result of who's sitting beside us. And he said, for the first time, by just trying something new, you allowed yourself to see the room in a new perspective. And if you started doing that towards life, if you changed the way that you approached a situation, that new perspective might be enough to change your life, right? It, it might be enough to find new solutions that you never thought of. It might be the opportunity that allows you to grow and find your full potential. And that always stayed with me because I thought it was such a fascinating exercise. And since then, we actually had this ongoing thing where every time we walked into a classroom, we forced ourselves to sit in a new seat. You know, it stayed with us. And I remember there was this other day that Mr. Hamilton came in and I, I remember we were all upset that we didn't get a snow day because it was supposed to be a snow day and it didn't end up happening. And Mr. I remember Mr. Hamilton was like, really? Like, you guys are upset about that? He's like, when I was your age, I loved going to school because when I stayed home, nothing happens. But when I went to school, things always happened. And I love that about school. And that actually rings in my head still today. I always think like, I love going out there. I love going to work. I love doing all these other things because things happen out there. And I like that I can participate. And one of those things that happens that lines up with my timing can significantly change my life forever. I talk about how you and I met. And I talk about how we've known each other for a decade. And the the memory that stands out to me is that you and I met out of one invitation from a mutual friend that asked me to come over to your house. And usually being the shy introvert that I am and the idea of hanging out at someone's house that I've never met was, was a little bit iffy to me at that time. But there was something about the way that he hyped you up to me that made it worth it. And I said, yes. And if I said no that day, there's a very good chance you and I would have never met. And you and I might have crossed paths living in a similar geographic area and would have never even looked at each other. And here we are now recording a podcast. So the idea of things happen when you go out there is something that will forever stay with me. And I found out later when I shared this story previously in a talk, someone told me that that exercise that Mr. Hamilton did was actually inspired by a movie. I think it was Menace to Society. I have to remember what movie it was. And you know what? I'm glad that he took an inspiration from something he saw and he actually shared that with me. I thought that was a lovely gift. And I think about how that can be a gift in things that you learn from your experiences that you can share with others. So I want to, I want to hit up your, your childhood a little bit, Camille. That was something that stayed with me forever. Grade seven, just taking how long that's been. And I, I drew up this picture and I guarantee you it's still very accurate because I remember it so vividly. Talk to me about, a childhood experience that you've had that changed the way that you perceive life today. Like you could really credit it to this specific moment that made a huge inspiration. And it doesn't need to be a school related one, just an experience when you were younger. Huh? Um, really putting me on the spot here. <laughs> you know, I, I do have a memory of grade 10, uh, but a childhood one that changed my life forever. Um, there are, there are not that many that I could think of, 
So maybe I'll just go with this one in grade 10. So in grade 10, I took philosophy. And this was the first time I ever even, you know, thought of anything like that. And I had no idea what to expect. And on the first day, he um, he said, he walks into the class in the middle. His name is Mr. Boguski. And he said, I am not real. And and everyone's like, what? And he's like, prove to me that I'm real. He's like, okay, um, we see you. He's like, yeah, but have you ever had your perception deceive you? Like, have you ever, you know, saw something that wasn't there? Have you ever heard something that wasn't there? Have you ever smelled something that wasn't there? And then he's like, okay. He's like, now prove to me that Australia is real. He's like, have any of you been to Australia? No. Okay. Why do you like, why do you think it's real? You've never been, you just heard about it. So, you know, that on the first day was crazy because then he's like, okay, well, uh, let, let's do another exercise. So he's like, okay, everyone follow me. And we walk outside the class outside the school into um into a little i i don't even know how to call it. like it's in a community center but they planted a tree there and he's like okay prove to me that this tree is re is real you can look at it so you can see it you can touch it you can smell it and hell you can even taste it and he got someone so he's like He's like, you know, seriously, go taste it. Like, I dare you, right? And he got a student to actually lick the tree. And he's like, you know, in my 10 years of teaching, I never actually had someone lick the tree. But you can see it, you can smell it, you can taste it. And yet, you can't come up with a good reason why it's real. And that kind of, <laughs> I, I know it's a little bit eccentric, but that kind of questioning of, you just trust your senses is that all you can trust is kind of it's difficult to come across the terms with like what else isn't real is my perception of my life real was you know is my anxiety real are my emotions real right all the all the stories i tell myself where do they come from how do i know that they're true and how do I know that my perception of my own life is as well? So it got me really, uh, really inquisitive about things that happened. And it made me really enjoy analyzing information and trying to dissect why do I think the way I do, right? Like, why is this information that's presented to me in such a way? Why is that believable? So it naturally just made me more curious about things. And then, you know, you, know, you just start reading about different philosophies and um, you, you get into the woods about stuff like this. And it just is crazy. It, it just makes you look at things completely differently when you, when you listen or you, when you read to like these mental giants that, you know, have been thinking their whole lives of this one thing. So that is the best experience I could come up with off the top of my head of what really changed my perception about my life. It's such a heavy discussion to have at grade 10 about yeah. what is real. And I'm thinking about what that environment looks like. And I imagine that you being someone that likes to 
dive in a bit deeper from a curiosity standpoint, maybe saw a lot of benefits in that perspective. But this could also like really have someone make someone have a breakdown, have an existential like crisis of like, why are we alive? What, what is my role in this world? Right? Like, am I even real? Which is a terrifying question to think about. And that's why I think there is that, that second part of it is the reflection on the experience, right? And sometimes the reflection on the experience means that it doesn't just stop at sitting down and pondering of what just happened in your life, but also really diving in and doing some research to figure out where this takes you and what's next, right? And I published my book uh, four years ago. And in my book, I talked about the moment in my life that got me inspired to go into the world of marketing. And now I have a career in marketing, thanks to a couple handful of experiences that happened in my life. And what I think that's being pushed more and more, which I I think there's a commonality in our stories, which is at the end of the day, the experiences, it shapens and in many ways strengthens our perspective. And when you have a stronger perspective, and when you have a smarter perspective, you're able to make better decisions. Right. It, it comes full circles. You go and take action to get better thoughts and then you use the better thoughts to take better actions. And I, I think there's a there's a very, very uh, cyclical manner where you can really better yourself through that journey of implementing and almost like flushing it back in every single time that you get a better perspective on any experience that you have. You know, in my story with when I went into this marketing career, it was very similar as well, which is the idea that. Long before I knew I wanted to get into marketing, I was in university and I remember being in university, not knowing why I'm at university. I was just kind of following along because I didn't want to be left behind while all my friends were graduating. So I I grabbed onto any program that I possibly could just to get accepted with my not so great grades that I had at that time. Being that I really didn't have a passion for studying, being that I didn't have a uh, a focal point of where I wanted to go. I naturally didn't perform well in university. I wasn't great at memorization and translating that into scantrons and multiple choices. So naturally, my grades did not reflect uh, my potential. And I got put on academic probation, which made me, I got to tell you, at that point, feel really, really stupid. I felt like I was the stupid one in my circle. I felt like I was the dumb one in my community. You know, the fact that I couldn't even make it out of year two without being put onto probation while all these other individuals that I didn't think were that much smarter than me were actually getting through and graduating, even if not with the highest grades. It really bothered me a lot back then. And I remember that when I walked away from university through my unhappiness, I took some time to reflect on that experience. And, you know, in many ways, people give uh, a very, very they give it they give it a hard time when they have a bad experience and they say, I wish I never had this. I regret that experience. Uh, you know, if I could go back in time, I would take that out of my life. And I'm so strongly against that because although it takes sometimes a very long time for you to see the benefits that came out of that so-called negative experience, that benefit wouldn't have been possible if it wasn't for that negative experience. You know, when I when I got kicked out of university, I took a year off and then I went back to post-secondary. But this time I decided to go down the college route. And in the college route, I continued with this business administration program that I thought would be easy enough for me to get through. And I actually realized that college was very easy for me. 
when university was the hardest thing I've ever done, college was very easy. And it's not to say college is easier, is that their way of teaching was substantially different and a lot more aligned with the way I learn. You know, it had more hands-on potential. It had more uh, interactive potential with the, with the professor because it was a smaller group of about 30 students where in university, I was literally sitting in a class of 500. And that's not even an exaggeration, which is quite terrifying. I remember in my economics class in university, the teacher walked up on first date and said that 60% of us won't make it and that he speaks fast and we better keep up, right? And in college, I remember the teacher stopping after every hour saying, does anyone have any questions? Do I need to clarify anything? And she or he would slow themselves down to make sure that everyone's able to keep up or else they feel like they're failing their job, not that the students are failing, which I thought was quite fascinating in the way that I learned. And when I picked all that up and I realized that I was actually very good at college, I was getting straight A's and I was actually getting the highest mark in my class. And I think back of like what the difference was. And I realized that the difference was that because I went through the pain and suffering of feeling like an idiot, having the lowest grade, getting kicked out and knowing what that pain feels like, you know, even the idea of what my family thought when I got kicked out of school, all that feeling gave me so much more drive in college and actually not taking it for granted that these teachers were putting in their time to make sure their students did well, not taking it for granted that I'm able to learn in a way that I enjoy learning, not taking for granted that I have a smaller group of individuals. So I actually befriended a lot of individuals in class where in university, I was very, very quiet and intimidated by this large volume of people in one room. So by not taking it for granted, I had this drive. That drive allowed me to get the highest grades in the class and befriend a lot of the people that I'm still friends with today. And a lot of that came out of what people would have considered a bad experience. And it was in one of those classes where a teacher walked up in the second year of college and she shared stories about her experience in the marketing industry. And by listening to her stories, along with another professor that shared his stories, I very quickly fell in love with marketing because the stories that were being shared by that professor was what I needed to hear at that given moment at full drive and motivation that made me say, this is the career that I want to pursue. If I change one thing, Camille, if I even took away that negative experience, I just think about the, uh, the, the roller coaster of events that could have happened that would have resulted in me in not being in that room at that right time. You know, let's say that university went like it's supposed to, then I graduated and I still don't know what I want to do because I graduated in a program that I had no interest in. Let's say that I, I, did, I didn't get kicked out and I joined the college right off the bat. You know, let's say I, I skipped the university experience and I went right into college. I wouldn't have the admiration for the setup of the college that we have and the way that the teachers teach and the small groups. I take that for granted. I might've not even been in the same room as that teacher at that time explaining that story that made me fall in love with marketing. If I even change 1% of my story of what people consider a bad experience, there is no such thing as a bad experience. I think there are experiences and I think some of them don't make us feel the way we'd want to feel. It doesn't give us that ideal emotions. And I think we stray away from it, not realizing that at the end of the day, those experiences give you the skill set to get you to levels that you would be unable to get to if you didn't have those skill sets. And I think every single time we see an experience that makes us feel bad, as much as it's hard to believe it's going to pay off down the road, it makes me sad. It makes me sad with how many people give up 
or, or turn away or never do that again out of fear that they'll get that feeling again, not knowing that the next time they got better. You know, what if I spoke at my first stage and I didn't like how it went and all of a sudden I hated speaking and I strayed away from it because I didn't want to fail again. What if I, what if we didn't do a podcast episode because we just didn't execute it the way it was supposed to the first time. It bothers me when I see people throw away their ambition in the fear of not wanting to get that feeling again. There are no such thing as bad experiences. It's just experiences at the end of the day that will either better you or hinder you based on your reflection and what you take from it. I use the terminology stop and smell the roses. And I don't mean just the smelling the smelling the roses part. I also mean like observe the garden that you're in. Are there changes that you can make? Are there improvements that you can make? Are you capable of growing more roses based on your observation? I think it's only when you stop to smell it and you reflect on it that you can make those improvements along the way. You actually shared something that I, I'd love you to talk a little bit more about, which is something that we talked about in a previous clubhouse room where you talked about running towards the fire, running towards the fear in order to grow. And I, I think this is a, a great part, a great segue to kind of what I'm saying, which is the idea of like not running away from it because you're worried it's going to happen again, or you're going to have a negative experience, but rather allowing yourself to merge in those experiences to get better. Do you mind sharing a little bit about your perspective on, on uh, just what I just shared around the idea of failure and bad experiences and how you've coped around it in your life. Yeah. I think what you shared was, uh, was very like intimate and very, very helpful for a lot of people too, because I saw the same thing in my life. When you frame yourself as a victim and you see experiences as this is terrible and how, you know, how tragic this serendipity worked for me in this way, that turns out to be negative, then you completely lose out on the benefits of that experience too. You can't, you can't frame something as all good or all bad because then you lose out on so much and life isn't black and white. There's all these different shades of gray you can learn from. So with me, uh, and I made that Instagram post about, uh, you know, turn towards the pain and run, run into it. Well, maybe you don't have to run or sprint into it, but at least face it because the experiences in my life, I have, I've had many, uh, let's say negative experiences. And the reason why they're negative, I guess, is because they can be ultra traumatic, but trauma is just something you have to learn how to deal with and heal from. And once you heal from it, you become a lot stronger because you've been tested and you survived. And in fact, if you can thrive, then that's a whole nother level of growth that a lot of people don't have the opportunity to experience. So um, maybe a quick example for me was, um, you know, I was in the military reserves and I got trained and I had both my hips, not broken, but I needed two hip surgeries, right? And I went through a lot of pain surrounding that. And I still have chronic pain to this day, but the pain back then was excruciating. Like the fact that I had to kind of suppress this voice in my head that says, ow, every time I walk just makes me really appreciate the fact that I can, because the recovery process, you know, I was in a wheelchair and I was using crutches at some points. Right. And I didn't realize how much of a blessing it is 
to walk without pain or to have a day without pain like that I haven't felt in over 10 years uh, you know to have that experience of being deprived of a basic human function that we take for granted you know we we don't realize how nice it is and how much of a privilege it is that we can interact with our with our world in a physical way you know through walking around and you know you can go outside like just something so basic when it's taken away from you then you start realizing how much you took it for granted so i can sit and be bitter for the fact that it happened and that i'm in pain or i can use it as a way to appreciate what i have and what i learned and now what i learned from chronic pain is I can kind of compartmentalize a bit. So it helped me with that. I learned how to focus better. I learned how to ignore, let's say, negative stimulus such as pain. Um, I also became more inclined to do more physical things because I have this pain now and I still don't want it to bother me. So I, I work out and I get stronger. And, you know, in fact, losing weight and gaining strength in my legs reduces my pain. It, it hurts when I, when I go to the gym, don't get me wrong. It hurts a lot more when I go to the gym and I'd be a lot more careful with the, the activities I do, but that's also positive because then it makes me really understand that, Hey, I have to appreciate my own limits as well. So instead of focusing, Oh my God, I can't work out because I'm in pain and I can easily break my hip or something, right? I can make so many excuses why I can't do things. But if you look at it through a different perspective, you can gain all the benefits from it. And the negatives that come with that experience, you can learn to heal from. And once you learn how to heal from that, that's also a benefit. So it just depends on how you come away from those experiences because any kind of experience, there's going to be good or bad. And you are strong enough to deal with the bad. So at the end of the day, it's a net positive if you learn to heal from it. So fantastic, man. And the importance of learning from that pain, I, I think it's, it's such a big piece that I think often gets left behind. And it, it prepares you for, for bigger moments. We, we've kind of seen that with the lockdown over the last couple of years, right? Because when the lockdown happened, uh, whether you look at it from a business perspective of how businesses responded to lockdown, uh, whether you take a look at it from a leadership perspective, or even just individuals that are trying to survive not just physically, not just for their health, but psychologically and emotionally and their stability around the, the environment of living in fear and the, the change of what their day-to-day -day looks like. You really saw a difference in the people that were prepared for the mo moments and that weren't. You know, sometimes people look at others that maybe grew up in a, in a wealthier family as having an advantage, and, uh, you know, don't get me wrong, from a financial standpoint, I think there are a lot of advantages, probably even from a resource standpoint, they probably have a lot more connections and physical resources that they could use that maybe they that others don't have. 
But I also think about how many individuals from that standpoint don't get to experience things that, that other people do because they didn't have the resources. I always talk about how experiencing heartbreak and, and going through a breakup and fe the feeling of being emotionally shattered into a million pieces on the ground and trying to figure out how to build yourself back up, in my opinion, is the best human experience that you could have because that skill set arms you for anything that life can throw at you. You know, when you can throw away disappointments, when you can throw away complaints, when you have the reassurance in your life that no matter what, I can bounce back because I've done it before. Those skill sets are the most transferable skill sets that you can use in anything that you do in life. And as a result of that, I, I've said it once in a TV network and some, some people got mad at me for saying it, but I was very loud about the fact that I said on, the, on this network that I hope that every human being experiences heartbreak at least once in their life. And I made sure I emphasized only once because I think going through it multiple times is, is torture at that moment and sometimes may even completely destroy your self-confidence, but rather the experience of going through it once to give you the ability to recognize that there are those things that you can feel like it, it, it actually makes your body go through certain experiences that's very difficult to get into, but also the ability to bounce back and come out stronger and really see your willpower and capabilities. I would really credit a lot of my successes today to be as a result of the heartbreaks that I had. And I don't just mean in relationships. I just mean disappointments in general that breaks your heart. And I, I can say that a lot of the things that I have today came out of rebuilding and being more driven to get it right the next time and having that experience to know what I want. The relationship that I'm in right now, I would say the only reason that I'm the happiest that I've ever been, and also the fact that I truly feel like I deserve it, is that I think I was 35 years in the making. I think I worked on myself for 35 years. I think I've went through disappointments, rebuilt, took those lessons, knew what I wanted in a relationship, knew what I didn't want in a relationship, knew how I could be my best in a relationship. And over time, I positioned myself as someone that I think really deserves this relationship. I think she's incredible, but I don't think that means that I got lucky. I think I really worked hard to get into that standpoint in my life. I spoke at an event just before the lockdown, and I remember getting up on stage and I looked around the room and I asked everyone to stand up. And when they all stood up, I asked every single one of them to think about something great in their life that happened, something monumental. I said, it could be like the first time you brought, bought the house of your dreams, the car of your dreams, the job of your dreams, the relationship of your dreams, your fitness goals of your dreams, whatever it is. I want you guys to all think about that. And, you know, Camille, while you're here, I want you to even think about that yourself. You know, think of something amazing that happened in your life and, and that you're really, really proud of. And then I followed it up by saying, sit down. If you can't think of one bad thing that had to happen, something that had to go wrong for you to be able to achieve that goal. And I looked around and I tried really hard. And I don't think I've noticed a single person sit down. And it was a realization to me that a lot of those individuals at that moment realized that the greatest accomplishments that they had in life, be it the dream house, the dream job, the, the dream car, the dream relationship, whatever it is, they had to have that one bad thing happen to them for them to be able to achieve that. And I, I'd love to ask you, if it's not too personal, what was that epic thing in your life that you're really proud of? And can you think of something bad that had to happen in your life for you to get there? I guess the easiest example was graduating the military course that I went through. 
So, um, yeah. And that was, and I also give the example of the bad thing that had to happen, which was my hip injuries, but also <laughs> all the mental and physical, let's say, not torture, but challenges is, is a good word for that, that I had to go through, but they can be misconstrued as bad. Yeah. So it, it begs the question, like, how is something bad if every single person went through it and every person had to go yeah. through it to get something good? Like, why is it a, a regret? Why is it a negative thing? Why can't it be seen as not a bad experience, but rather a necessary experience? If every single human being, and I've done this exercise multiple times, came back with, yes, and this had to happen, why are we seeing it as something that we should avoid and tiptoe around in order to get to success? I think when you have that realization, it really puts things into perspective that those moments that happen, it's, it's almost like a bargain that you're making with the future, right? It's like you're saying like, listen, I'm going to feel this now, but you're going to you're going to make it worth it in the future. And the second part, which is the harder part, I think, Camille, is the surrendering to that process is truly believing that it's going to work, even though you're not seeing it. You know, you know, when they say you have to see it to believe it, but in this manner, you have to believe it to see it. You have to believe that the pain is going to result in a benefit for you to later see the benefit. And I think when that when you start truly seeing that and tasting it once, the second time, the third time, and you become such a believer, your response to a bad day isn't the same anymore. It's not pity. It's not complaining. It's not sadness, but rather what does this mean and how can I use this, right? The how questions start coming up. Like, how does this set me up for success? And I think the second you start thinking about it from that perspective, it changes completely. And uh, I'd love to get your take on if you have a similar perspective. Like when you have a bad day now, you know, not all days will be good. We're human beings after all. When, when a bad day happens, and I got to keep throwing up air quotes for my audio listeners. I got to voice that out. When a bad day happens or a bad experience happens, how do you mentally cope around it that maybe other individuals can do the next time they experience something like that? Well, the way I cope with it first is I ask why, and that's not productive most of the time, especially if I tend to be in a mood that is very self-critical, then it's not effective. So it starts with why, but then it does go from, what do I learn from this? Or how do I pre uh, prevent the negative outcomes from happening again? And are they really truly negative? Because at the end of the day, it's a challenge, right? Usually the bad days are a challenge. And, you know, you can't have one thing without the other. You can't be happy without having sadness sometimes, right? Or else what's the point of being happy? It wouldn't be called anything. It would just be what it is. So I look at bad days as a different necessary evil, for lack of a better term. And I see it as an opportunity to reflect. Because if you're having a bad day, then, you know, something's going on. So it's an opportunity to talk to yourself and understand what's going on and what can I do to help. And to be kind to yourself, because if you feed into that, and what I mean by feeding into that is feeding into the critic too much, uh, to let that voice overpower yours, then you can easily come to a situation where you end up 
breaking yourself down and blaming yourself or blaming circumstances and other factors that don't that aren't really helpful so it's taking good honest look and asking yourself okay how can i get out of this but also yeah like for me what i recognize helps the most is actually sitting with it because a lot of the times i feel people distract themselves and they can distract themselves through escaping through food drugs through alcohol or even through productivity you know they through work and they just avoid and like you said that's a problem where people avoid their own issues and they don't face towards the pain and actually sit with it and let themselves actually feel i think that's where a lot of issues stem from so i do sit with it and sometimes best not to even give it a voice when when is that severe to actually just let yourself feel it and you know some people can emote to it like you know if you cry let it out so I guess in summary, sit with with a bad day and ask yourself, how do I want to improve this? Do I want to make things better? And how do I do that? And make and make a deal with yourself in a way that isn't forceful, isn't make yourself a slave to the person you want to be. Make just Free yourself with kindness and gratitude. That's the way I look at it. I'm wondering if you have a similar outlook as well. You said something in episode one that was so good that it became a quote that we posted on our social media, which was the self-criticism part. And your quote suggesting that it needs to be constructive, not destructive. And I think this echoes very, very loudly in this specific area because this part, of the conversation gets scary, right? It's the moment where you've experienced something that you may consider to be a bad or regretful experience. And now you're kind of sitting back and reflecting on it. And in many ways, you're doing the shadow work, right? You're looking through what that felt like, why it felt like it, and maybe even going deeper and saying, what is it part of my identity? What is it about the part of my identity that makes me respond in this manner? And sometimes if you're not mentally strong in that part of the conversation you're actually beating yourself up and saying that why am i so weak why am i feeling this way why can't why can other people do it and i can't i'm so bad at this like why why is this happening and you start chewing apart your identity rather than feeding it how you could do it better and i like the word how a lot and i bring how back quite frequently in conversations now because i think it's the one that sometimes does not get talked about enough. To its credit, I think the word why has a lot of validity because the why component makes you think back to your burning desires and those part of your emotions that shows intent. And it allows you to line up intent with the outcome. And the better you understand your intent, the more likely you're going to follow through with the outcome, regardless of the friction and and the, and the difficulties that you have and the obstacles you got to go through to get there. The higher And the stronger your why is, the better you can go. And we know this because it gets talked about a lot in our industry. The word how, I think the word how is where your creative juices start flowing. Because it doesn't matter what it is that you're observing. When you start asking yourself how questions, your mind automatically starts populating ideas for you in order for you to execute. 
I'm in the marketing industry and part of my day-to-day involves coming up with creative solutions for our clients. And once I discovered how effective the how questions are, I started actually applying it to my career every day in order to get the juices flowing in order for me to find solutions. And for those of you that are listening or watching, it's worth even thinking about this activity, which is the idea that the how can be used anytime, anywhere, and you're doing it all the time without realizing it. A good example that I think everyone can relate to is when you're driving home from work. The next time you're driving home from work, take a second to ask yourself, how do I get home today? Or how do I get home quickly? However you want to phrase the question. And what you're going to find based on the way that you phrase the question is that your mind is automatically going to start populating some ideas. It's going to say, hey, maybe you should take the highway because that's usually the fastest speed limit. Maybe you should dodge this one road because it has the most red lights and you know you're going to get, you're going to get stuck. Maybe go down this one because it has the least amount of traffic. Or, hey, you have a lot of time on your hands today. You don't really have plans. Why not take the scenic route and and appreciate some of the scenery that you can find along the way? Why don't you go down this way so that because a lot of your friends hang out there and maybe you'll bump into one of them. Your mind will automatically start feeding you ideas based on the question that you presented to it. The fact that you can do that as on an activity as simple as driving, I like to think about how much bigger I can go with the house. And every single time I hit an obstacle and I'm not sure what to do, I first start by asking myself how I can overcome that obstacle. And then I take that same how question and I actually go and search. Like we live in a search era. We have more tools than we've ever had in the history of this world to search for answers to our problems. I honestly don't think there is any question in the world that we can't find an answer to. Now, whether the answer is correct or not has to come down to comparison and further digging, but you can find an answer to any question that you have. And once upon a time, you would have had to travel to the library and flip through a bunch of books in hopes that the the limited yet not so limited supply of books would be able to give you that answer. Now, by pulling out a device from your pocket, By tapping on a couple areas of your screen, you're able to go down this website where not only are published authors sharing their insights, but people in the world that just have opinions. And I think about the fact that you can use that to solve a lot of the challenges, but also grow through other people's experiences. So when I come back to this eerie side of the world, which is the shadow working, the part where you may be ripping yourself apart, I think it's worth thinking about how to get out of that environment and how to use what you learn to get out of it rather than why you're in that place. Because the problem with your mind auto-populating answers is that if you're asking yourself, why am I so weak? That negative connotation that's in that question, it's still going to result in you getting answers. And unfortunately, those answers may not be good. You know, the answers may be things like, because you're lazy, because you're not as smart, because you're an idiot. You know, because your parents raised you this way and then you start having resentment towards your parents. I think the answers that you get are a result of the questions that you ask. So it's equally as important in asking good questions with a positive reinforce, uh, reinforcement than it is just asking that question because the answer that you get will get you out of those challenging situations and it will make you better as a result of that. I'm so big on the how questions now that I've actually started implementing it in all areas of my life which has resulted in why I started speaking on stage. Because once upon a time, I asked myself, like, 
how do I get in front of the people that really want to learn about personal development? And then I, then there was an idea in my head that said, get on stage for people that are interested in conferences that are like that. Then I asked myself like, Hey, how do I get out to the people that aren't going to be attending my conferences? Hey, put out a book. What about the people? How do I get to the people that don't read books, put out a podcast and the evolution continues. The second you get good at mastering the art of the how you can start taking these experiences and stacking it in order to get to the next experience, which is why I always come back to the idea of necessary, the necessary part. It's a necessary step in order for you to get to the next level. Talk to me a little bit about that quote, constructive, not destructive. What does it look like in the thought process of someone that's being destructive? And what does it look like for how a person can change from that way of thinking into being someone that's constructive that does make them better as well? Yeah, I think um, what you describe, especially with the how versus the why is very important. And it's a good distinction because when you ask why, it is an emotional slash motivational question. When you ask how, it is an action-based So when you go to destructive criticism and you ask yourself why, and then you find yourself feeding, your, uh, feeding a story about how you are just either a victim of your own incompetence, or this is just a long line of patterns of how you failed, and you start bringing back information that or history of your failures, then you can see how that can be destructive very easily because it's just trying to reaffirm that you are not good enough for this particular experience. And if you're related to your identity as a human being, that is very destructive because all you can see are failures, all you can remember are failures, and all you can see forward are failures. So you, by definition, are a failure if you feed into that loop. And I think constructive criticism would be okay, why did I fail and how? How do I prevent it from happening? But not why to why has to just come from a place of genuine curiosity and has to be as objective as possible. Even though it is an emotional slash motivational question, I do think that why is important, especially for people that are first starting out or are exploring. Like why, why do you do the things you do? Like it's important to know if it feeds into your values or not. But the how, I think, is where you get the most, uh, most benefit from. So the constructive kind of element of that is action-based. And like you said, if you have good ex- executive function, it teaches you how to execute what you want. So as long as you know why you're doing it, then you can ask yourself how. And then how is just the actions you have to take in order to get that goal. So constructive criticism would be something along the lines of, um, let's say you took a test and nailed it. So why'd you fail it? Well, maybe you're, maybe you're not interested in the subject. Okay, but how do I pass it? Well, even though I'm not interested, maybe I just have to learn my weaknesses and then fix it. Right. And then these are the steps I'm going to take to fix it. I'm going to do space repetition and then go into the technical details, the micro of it, where these would be why you fail the test. Why do you fail the test? Oh, because I'm lazy. Oh, because I always failed these tests. Oh, because I've always been failing and I'm going to fail and I'm going to drop out of that's that's a cognitive distortion. 
And, and maybe for those that find themselves in that trap, it would be a good idea to read up on cognitive distortions. Like that was catastrophizing, for instance. Um, so learning about how to build yourself up instead of how to break yourself down, I think is the biggest difference between constructive and destructive criticism, especially when you're talking to yourself. And what I find is that for people that are neurotic, it is very easy to go into the, the destructive route. And if you find yourself in patterns of, let's say, mood instability, or you find yourself being a person that is anxious a lot, maybe stop focusing on the why so much and focusing on the how would provide much greater benefit to you. And the problem is, is when it's become a comfortable way of thinking, it is very hard to break away from. So I think as well, learning how to meditate really does help you separate from yourself and try to implement that change there. So I think it's very difficult to do for people that are, that have the same experience as I do. And for people that have been trained to think negatively as I have and the strategies to fix that or to make yourself kinder in a way that is constructive is a very deliberate process. And I'm not sure if you had the same experience where it had to be very deliberate and systematic with your how to get to that why. I find that in many ways, it's an emotional gym. You know, when you start doing it often enough, you hope that that frequency will allow you to be on autopilot to do it quickly the next time it happens. And this is the beauty of going through it in the past and actually taking your time to figure out how you work through it and then reflecting back and being proud of yourself to work out of it. Because once you do that, you have the confidence that you could do it over and over again. And that confidence allows you to do it on autopilot. I can honestly say that I don't remember the last time I had to like intentionally stop everything I'm doing and saying, let me think about this. There's that part of me that does it very rapidly on autopilot every time a bad experience comes. And I think this is as a result of a lot of mental grooming. If you do a lot of mental grooming to train yourself for moments like those, it's very similar about what they say about uh, different sports like boxing, where in boxing is the second, the second the bell rings and the fight starts, you forget everything that you learn. You're no longer thinking about it. You're just trusting that through repetition, you're able to do the right techniques. You're able to bring your hand up after throwing a jab to guard, to guard yourself from getting hit. You're able to move around the ring without utilizing all your stamina. Like you just learn how to work better as a result of repetition. When you start going it, through it in the past, I find that that happens quite frequently as well, is that when something happens, you're able to overcome it without realizing that this was actually that big of a negative experience. And part of that comes out of the relationship that you have with yourself. And I, I talk about the self-talk component a lot, and I'm really glad we're spending a big part of this conversation today talking about how to perceive the feedback that you receive from these experiences, because this is the part that I think is a make or break. And in many ways, what prevents people from having these new experiences that self-talk which is the voice in your head, the mental chatterbox in the back of your mind that is constantly talking to you 
And I think about the fact that in your entire life, there is no voice in the world that you're going to hear more than your own. No matter who your closest friends are, no matter who your significant other is, no matter who your children are, there is no voice in the world that you're going to hear more than yourself. Can you imagine living a life where the voice that you hear the most in your life is talking you down every single day, is saying that you're a loser, saying that you're pathetic, saying that you're weak, saying that you're not going to be able to do this, saying that you should quit. I think it's very hard to live a happy life if the voice that's always around you is one that's tearing you apart. And I think a lot of that happens based on the fact that that's the relationship that you've created with your own identity. The relationship that you have with your identity, as a result of that relationship, you start seeing the dialogue that gets carried over. You know, it's kind of like if you had a sibling that you didn't get along with and you really, really hated your sibling, the conversations you're going to have with your sibling are going to be brutal, right? The most negative, the more you hate your sibling, the more brutal your dialogue is going to be. I think it's the same way with your own identity. The more you start disliking who you are as a result of those constructive sorry, the destructive conversations that you're having, you're going to start having a really bad relationship with yourself. I think you start at the well. You know, a lot of people go right for the sink, but I think you start at the well and figure out what is resulting in these brutal negative conversations that I'm having with myself. And in many ways, a lot of that comes down to the fact that you've been trying to spend a lot of your life trying to prove that voice wrong rather than trying to change the perspective of how you see the world. I've become such a big fan of this, that if you change the perspective on the world, for example, we spend a lot of time selling the idea that bad experiences aren't necessarily bad. I believe that so much that I don't have a negative, long-lasting reaction to something that happens that may not be great. You know, I, I had an experience just the other day where I parked my car in a parking lot and I went into a, a restaurant to eat. And on my way coming out of the parking lot, there was a loading truck that had the back of its elevator right in front of where my car was parked. And it was trying to offload uh, some skews of food to carry into a restaurant. And I, I watched closely as I realized that I couldn't take my car out of that spot because the elevator was in the way and I'd, I'd get hit and it would leave a brutal scar on my car. So I've asked the individual to move to who to which he responded with the fact that it's easy for me to drive past this elevator without hitting my car. He's telling me that he doesn't need to move the truck. I'm fully capable of navigating around the elevator. And he might have been right. You know, I looked closely and I saw there's a, a bit of an opening. Maybe I can navigate through it. But that was beside the point. I didn't have confidence that I could drive past that spot without scratching my car. So I asked him a several times and he kept responding back with that you can do it. And he even said, I will help you navigate through it. And I responded back with, it's not your choice. It's not your choice to decide whether I can get through this or not. I need you to take 10 seconds to put that elevator up and move it out of my parking spot so that I could drive out and go home. You know, it was a long day. I was exhausted. I just wanted to get out of there. And after multiple attempts, he said, fine, you don't want to, you don't want to try, just wait. And I thought when he said, just wait, what he was going to do is go back to his truck and move the elevator out of the way. But he went up into his truck and then he came out with a skew. He was going to proceed with doing his job and loading up the restaurants with all these skews and make me wait anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes for him to finish his job so he could leave. And I was thinking to myself, what do I do? I was, I was very upset. And I remember I even came out of the car and like, 
you know, there, there are voices in my head that are like, hey, like, find the button and press it and move it yourself. Like, who cares? Who cares if he's not going to do it? You do it. You've given him enough chances. I didn't even know how to move that freaking elevator. But part of my mind was like, you figure it out. Just do it. Another one was for me to chase him into the restaurant and go off on him and in front of everybody, including the, the restaurant owners, to let him know that he needs to move his damn truck. And I, there's a lot of negative thoughts in me. But then I realized, man, like, I actually felt bad for him. And I, I don't mean it out of pity. I actually felt bad that this was a thing that was like triggering him. And like, this was the thing that he needed to win in order to like justify the day that he's having. And I actually just went back in my car and I waited for him. And I waited for him to come back and finish his job and move the elevator up and finally close it and get out of the way. And then I drove home and I, you know what? I drove home feeling really good about my life. And I felt really good about my life because I had a realization that something that small doesn't bother me based on where I am in my life. Do I agree with his reasoning for why he did what he did? Absolutely not. But is it worth driving my car into his ramp to prove my point? I didn't think so. And I think that that kind of relationship with myself is very similar to someone that has a good grasp on on controlling that ego because it was the ego in me that was making me want to prove a point and be right. Be right so much that I was willing to slam my car into the, into the back of his truck in order to make my point. But instead, I realized that I'm really happy in where I am in my life. And this small piece that was taking up, what, 10 minutes of my time was not worth ruining my entire day. When you think about how many minutes you have in an entire day, the fact that you're letting 10 minutes ruin that entire day is obnoxious to me. And you know what happened as I was driving off? I, I left in an even better mood than before I was about to get into my car in the first place. Because I realized I have such a good grasp of how I feel about my mental stability that that relationship for me was worth far more than trying to make an impact in this individual that I'll never see again in my life. And it's that perspective and that outlook that allows me to not have a negative um, conversation with myself. I can't remember the last time I put myself down. Have I, have I lost in some things? All the time, probably more than I win. Have I failed? Probably three times more than I win. But I've never ever can remember the last time that I tore myself apart and my identity as a result of that. And you said something very interesting when I asked you about how to work through this constructive path. You said that you shouldn't let these failures impact your identity. What is, an, what is the identity made out of if it's not made out of the experiences that make you, make you who you are? What does it get created by if not by the experiences and the learnings from it? I think that's a question that no one can answer, really. I think if you look at it, at it through a very structural way, I, you have your body, you have your brain, you have your mind, and then you have you. And you are not your mind. Your mind is just the software that you run on and the algorithms and all those programs you have. So you can clean them up and declutter them and you can appreciate your emotions, which are kind of internal stimulus for yourself, but your emotions are not you either, right? They're just information. So it's very difficult for me to say what identity is. Because I, I think about it in several different ways. I think about it as core values. I think about it as 
your, where you focus your attention on. I think about it as maybe your accomplishments, but that it seems like an incomplete answer. I it can't, I can't think of a good answer. So I'm thinking out loud here, but I would say that your identity is basically what you want for yourself, right? And that means it can be a negative one. If you see yourself as a failure, then you, you assume that identity. If you see yourself as a bodybuilder and you go to the gym a lot, then you assume that identity too. And then you work those systems, those hows into it. So when you see yourself as someone, like you said, as, as someone who is happy and wants the best for the world, then you can assume that identity. And maybe that doesn't even have a name, right? Maybe you can say that your name is who you are, but who that person is, is who you choose. And that's what makes it difficult to define. I, I know I uh, put you in a very tough situation because that random curveball came out of nowhere. It's, all, it's even <laughs> off topic, but I, I was just like, huh, you know, that's a really cool perspective. And I think I agree with you. I think it's, I, I think there's that part of the core values, but more so than what an identity is, is I want to emphasize what I think an identity is not. And I think the identity is not, is it's not reflected by what you're doing, but who you are, right? Like the, what you're doing part is often confused because a lot of people, when you ask them, um, when you ask to know more about them, like, tell me more about yourself. They almost always go right to the job titles, right? Like, oh, I'm a, I'm a doctor. I'm a, I'm a lawyer. Oh, I'm a, I'm a marketer. Right. And, and like in many ways that, that job title becomes their name, like who they really are, what they, why, why they exist. And I, I think that part gets misconstrued a lot because when you think about who you want to be in the future, I hope that my, the perception of the world of who I am is not put into a box. I hope that it's hard to put it in a box because I don't want someone to say, oh, who is Mafuz? Oh, he was a marketer. Who is Mafuz? Oh, he was a podcaster. Who is Mafuz? He was a speaker. I like the idea of the fact that we're in a world where we are now a, in, the, in, the, in the multifaceted era, right? We, we're in the world where people have different skills, different passions, and different ways of being themselves. So when, I, when people think of Mufus, I like the idea of me being this floating identity of different things that I offer to the world and the fact that this is who I am. And when you start scaling down the job titles and what you do, and you start thinking about who you are in terms of your human characteristics, I think those to me mean far more, far more than what I want to be recognized for than the things that I'm doing in this world, right? Like I would rather someone say that I've, I've, I'm compassionate or I have empathy yeah. or I'm, I, have, I have kindness, right? Like those parts of me are things that have evolved through the experiences, mind you, let's not ignore that. Like I think experiences do shape in or hinder depending on how I perceive those experiences. But I think in many ways, there are key characteristics that formulate because you can change your identity, right? Like that's important to state. Like you can change who you are, the person you're born with, the condition that you grew under, the, the way that you were raised, especially if you're unhappy with it. There is a big reason why my favorite word in this entire planet is reinvent. Because it's the idea that you don't have to stay where you are today, 
by just going to several experiences, by having better conversations. And then what we're going to talk about next week about better execution, you can literally take yourself out of the identity that you feel like you have today and completely do a 180, completely go the other direction and become much, much happier than where you are. A lot of our podcast listeners, I'm very convinced, are people that are still trying to figure out what they want to do and who they want to be. And I want to come back to full circle of where we started, which is the emphasis on tasting things, trying things. The more that you experience, the more information that you have about who you want to be and what you want to do. You can be a soccer player at a young age that tied her laces for the first time and kicked a ball around and realized that this is what you want to do for the rest of your life. And you become a gold medal winner as a result of pursuing your passion, but only because you've tasted playing soccer for the first time. Or you could do whatever it is you want to do, but you'll never be able to discover that if you haven't given yourself the freedom to taste things. And the thing about tasting things, like going to a restaurant, is you don't have to like the food. You know, you don't have to like it. You're not eating poison at the end of the day, which is worth emphasizing. You know, when it comes to experience, you don't want to experience things that maybe live or die, but you want to experience things that will allow you to have the confidence to really understand whether you like the taste of it or not. And when you like the taste of it, you can decide whether you want to come back for more. You can decide if you never want to order that again. You can decide what to do with the information that you receive. And it doesn't just end at the taste. It may end at the company that you had at that restaurant. It may be about what inspired you about the aesthetics of that restaurant. There is many layers that comes out of when you taste something that you leave with that allows you to use that knowledge to do the next thing that you want to do. But it all happens when you taste it. How does one taste more things? Where does one start? If someone wanted to know where to start, what to do first, like you, not everyone's going to jump out of a plane as their first taste, yeah. right? So let's, let's, let's finish off this great episode with some practicality. Where does someone start tasting? You know what? I'm glad that you brought all that up, especially your view on identity, because I think it starts there, right? We attach labels to people like, um, I don't know, like you can say Camille, ex-military, ex-smoker, ex-whatever, ex like doctor, I don't know, podcaster even. You can you can put, attach all these labels, but at the end of the day, it's just how we work. It's easy. And the reason why it's important that it's easy is because if you de deconstruct that, so what is a doctor to most people? Most people see doctors as compassionate, intelligent, whatever. Well, hardworking, like uh, persistent and diligent. Like those are all values that they have. Those are all attributes. So in order to taste more things, you have to know what, what draws you to them. You look at your own core values and you say, okay, what does the label of, let's say, soccer player, what is that? To me, okay, soccer players are athletic, they're hardworking, they're in shape. Are those in line with what I want for myself? Yes. Okay, so this is the how to get that. Soccer is the how I get athletic. This is the how I get more hardworking. And this is the how I get into shape. Is that how feasible for me? Or do I want a different system? Right, then you could try a different sport. Or you can try a different activity. So I think the tasting more things is actually understanding and having a new with yourself. And then trying to see which values you want to develop or which values you want 
um, to have stronger roots in. And then asking yourself, how do those values come into play with a particular, let's say, identity, for lack of a better term? Maybe it's system is a better word. But so, for instance, do I want to become more open? If you want to become more open, then be more honest. Maybe those are two values that are interconnected with what you want to do. And how do you do that? Well, you have to figure that out. Do you want to just start with your day-to-day -day conversations? Do you have enough of them? Or do you want to listen to people that are experts? And then that inquires you to more activities surrounding that. So maybe that includes video journaling or vlogging even, or podcasting. And that, that allows you to have a sort of framework to base what you want to taste more, right? Maybe you want to do things by yourself so you can find things that are solo or in this day and age, especially now that um, we have what's going on, everything's available online. So you can always find an outlet for that. And if worse comes to worse, you can look up everything on Google. Google pretty much knows everything. So you can say, uh, activities that involve whatever, but it all starts from knowing what you want and knowing yourself and actually putting yourself out there. So for some people, it might be more confidence. So how do you do that? Well, you got to work on yourself too. And maybe that entails putting yourself out there with these situations and learning the baby steps. If everything's too intimidating too. Um, overstimulating for you, having to understand like what is the line I'm willing to cross makes me uncomfortable, but makes me cool enough to be uncomfortable. And having to learn how to be uncomfortable is a skill in itself that involves a lot of effort and a lot of intention. So I think, I think that is the way to go about it i'm yes. not sure about how you feel but i'd love to hear your thoughts 100 percent agree with everything and i love that you went back to start with the characteristics that matter the most to you i think that's such a big piece that's that's required the comfort level part is so big that we need an entire episode dedicated towards that because i think that the the ability and the willingness to get uncomfortable is the difference between someone that remains ambitious and not I think ambition goes right out the window the second you start getting comfortable. And I've seen that in my own life, you know, in my past relationships, when I got into a relationship, I, I stopped doing a lot of the self care things that I used to because my intention was to be my best for the next relationship. And when I got into it, I would always just slow down. Um, same with when things are going right in my job and my career, like I feel the least motivated when things are going great. So I, I think that that comfort zones are the depth to your ambition. And I think it's only when you're willing to get uncomfortable that you really see that level of growth, but that's going to be a great conversation for the other part uh, that, that I really want to get into in a future episode. But the other thing that I want to just leave here is that you don't have to do this alone, right? For some people that may see themselves as a lone wolf that maybe doesn't have the circle of friends that maybe doesn't want to do things with them, um, you still don't have to do it alone, right? Like there's communities out there, there's clubs out there, there's events out there. And more often than not, 
sometimes you don't even need to figure out what it is that you want to taste. Sometimes your friends will be like, hey, I was kind of like looking to do this and this. And I'd be like, oh, could I join with you? Because I want to try it out too. You know, I've, I've become very passionate about playing soccer. I don't think I'm great at soccer by any means, but I can tell you that I got pretty good and I got very, very active with soccer, which is probably the only other thing in the world that will ever make me run run outside than maybe getting chased by a dog. You know, like it's only a couple of things in the world that'll make me run because cardio is something I've never been crazy about doing. But when you put a soccer ball in front of me, I get really excited to run around and kick the ball around. The only reason I ever discovered that is because one of my closest friends is Portuguese and a diehard soccer fan. And when I first started hanging out with them, he would say like, hey, me and my buddies are playing soccer. Come play soccer with us. And I would go and play soccer with him. And very quickly, I realized that I love this sport. And it resulted in us, uh, my friend and I, along with many of our other friends, actually joining a soccer league that we played for many, many seasons after that. And over time, I found myself getting pretty good at it just based on the reoccurring practice that I got over the years. And I never would have discovered that. I, mean, I can't say never. Maybe there would have been opportunities because soccer is a common sport. But I wouldn't have discovered it at that time and that place if it wasn't for participating with my friend's activities. There's sometimes that moment where you hear an activity happening and you're going to feel a couple emotions. One emotion might be excited because you think this is something you love because it pulls on those strings of those characteristics we talked about. You know, if you, if you like humor and someone says, Hey, I'm going to stand up comedy. You're going to kind of want to go because you know, that pulls on that humorous side of that humor cord in you that you really are a big fan of. There might be the other part that's also worth listening to the part that causes a little bit of anxiety, right? The part that if someone said, Hey, I'm going out and um, we're, we're going to, we're going to jump off out of a plane, for example, and it causes a little bit of anxiety or the first time you ever went on a roller coaster, that feeling that you get, that's like, it seems terrifying, but fun at the same time, pay a little bit of attention to it before you dismiss it. Because it may not be the anxiety of the actual fear of the activity. It might be the buildup of what the worst case scenario could be. And the worst case scenario more often than not talks you out of what could have been a fantastic experience and really note down which one it is. You know, when I did skydiving in the past, yeah, we had to sign a waiver. And yeah, the waiver said I may die. But I also looked into the other part of it, which is the fact that that, that place that I went to has been around for 65 years and has never had an ex, uh, a accident in their life. And I assure you, I knocked on wood many times when I read that out loud. But also the fact that every single jump starts with an inspection of not only one parachute, but two parachutes that are in the bag and tested before you jump out of that plane, giving that assurance that if, if it goes wrong, like they must have really messed up miserably. Like number one, they didn't check it. And number two, they didn't put two parachutes. So knowing that not only you have one, but you have two. And then number three, the fact that they attach a pressure watch towards you, that even if you passed out in the middle of the air and you no longer could pull the string, the pressure watch automatically ejects that parachute for you so the fact that they've taken all these precautions to eliminate that fear of death that you're signing in that waiver made me more confident about going into that. So when you really start dissecting the danger, you start realizing that the danger is more through anticipation than it is about the reality of the circumstance. And that can result in you in tasting things that I would say are far more delicious than maybe tasting the things that you know are good. The first time I've ever had sushi in my life, 
you know, let's get literal with food while we're talking about tasting because yeah. it's almost lunchtime and I'm getting a bit hungry. <laughs> the first time I tasted sushi in my life, I very much remember this. We went to one of my aunt's house and she served very poorly made homemade sushi. It was awful. It was one of the worst things I've ever had in my life. And I think for about eight years, I avoided sushi because my reflection on what sushi tastes like was that one thing that my aunt served me once upon a time in a, in a visit that we made in her house. After eight years, my friend once again asked me if I want to try sushi one more time. And I decided to finally give it a shot because I've matured in my way of perception of these things. And I got to tell you today, without a doubt, sushi is by far my favorite dish of choice. Like if I was in death row and I get one dish, that would be my dish, di dish, all you can eat sushi. And that would have never happened if I didn't give myself the fair chance of deciding why I'm feeling the negative feelings that I'm getting around this experience. So with that being said, Camille, I, I want to thank you once again. And I want to leave you with, I'll uh, give you an opportunity for some parting words because I, I never want to shut down an episode without really beating this idea down, which is the conversation around experiences. Without a doubt, you in my eyes are the one person that experiments more than anyone else I've ever met in my life in every way, from a social standpoint, from a, mm -hmm. from a medicine and studying standpoint, from a physical standpoint, from experimenting some um, hypothesis that you have, some theories that you have, more than anyone I've ever met in my life. You are the person I would send someone to if they're like, hey, I want to learn how to be more experimental and I want to learn how to do it better. Can you please leave some parting words in how that has experienced you, has impacted your life, made you better, and what you encourage others to do in the same way? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Um, thank you. I had no idea. I, I do a lot of these experiments on myself, and it's, it's for, I, I guess the underlying motivation is because I want to learn more, right? Not only of the world around me, but of myself. And also, I find you can read about everything you can, you can research, but it's a completely different thing to actually experience it. Then that's where the real learning comes in. And I guess to develop that side more, you just have to be more curious. A lot of the times, you know, that silliness we all try to avoid because we're afraid of what people think. If you let that silliness play out in your mind, you know, like a child is what I have I feel like this child like asking this why all the time that's what allows me to be uh, more curious about these about these different things and you know getting outside of your own head and trying to live in the moment sometimes you'll just experience like random questions like today I asked myself like why do they say wing it like where did that come from like if you have that genuine curiosity and luckily we have Google, so we have the answer right away. Um, and you extend that to everything else, then that helps. And then once you actually recognize that, you know, these experiences you had in your life, like you mentioned, the first time you had sushi, terrible, but you know, you tried it again just to be sure. And then you realize that it's your favorite dish. Like recognizing that you don't know what your favorite thing is until you try it. Having that in your head makes you realize that it's about experience. And I mean, that's what you can do when we live. And the more you have, the more information you can have. 
imagine your favorite thing in the world and imagine what can replace your favorite thing because you haven't tried it yet. Like, if that doesn't motivate you to try things, then you really have to take an honest look at yourself. Like, I don't, I don't understand um, why people feel like they have to stop where they are. You, there's always room for improvement, right? And that's why I, I talk about that a lot. We can do better. And I mean, can we do better than sushi? I think not, but maybe it's possible, right? And uh, like, it's about finding out. So if, if there's something better than sushi out there, I, I pray to God in my lifetime, I get to find out what that is because I would love to know. But I think it's such a sad, unfulfilled life that you don't get to try your favorite dish in the world. You don't get to try your favorite activity in the world. You don't get to be your full potential and do the most you can in this world. And it, it scares me. That, state, that keeps me up at night, that there are things out there that might be my favorite blank in the world, and I haven't even tried it yet. I agree with you, man. I think that's the ultimate motivator. Yeah. I, it's, it's what drives me every day. That's what I find. I just, uh, it's, it's sad to see when people kind of give up or they think they know what they, what they know and they think they know themselves because in, in reality, like we talked last week, you, you can never fully know yourself and you can never fully know someone else. So why not at least try to get to know yourself better? And that the best way to do that, in my opinion, is experience. Camille, you're the man. Thank you so much for always bringing your best to these episodes. You are my favorite. You know, while we're talking about our favorite tasting, favorite doing, you are my favorite podcast person to jam with. And I'm so glad I get to taste that as well. So thank you so much for being part of today's conversation as we dissect down better experiences. And I think from all the hinting that we've done, our next one will definitely have to be more about better execution. And I'm excited to come back and jam every single Sunday live on YouTube at 10 a.m. Eastern time. So if anyone is following us on YouTube or subscribe, you can actually watch and be part of these conversations in real time. And we're we have our chat wide open, so we're always watching and engaging with anyone that's chatting with us here. But if you're listening to the audio version or the video version, I encourage you to please hit that subscribe button so that you're the first to know every single time we have an episode out. From myself to you and Camille, thank you all for tuning in. We'll see you again next week at the Modern Mindset Podcast. Take care, everyone.